fantastic. I'm going to invite Matt up to speak to us today. Thank you. Yes. That was a better reaction than the delayed woo about 9.30. Thanks. <laughs> fantastic. Um, can I pray for you? Certainly. <laughs> thank you. Um, Lord God, we thank you for Matt. We thank you for the work he does. We thank you for your wonderful creation. And we ask today, Lord, that through the words that Matt has prepared, you speak to each one of us. Increase our compassion for your creation. Increase our understanding of climate crisis. And soften our hearts to see your will be done. Amen. 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 Morning, everybody. How are we doing? No, do not adjust your sets online. I've been unleashed from behind the guitar uh, today. Yeah, it's wonderful to be uh, talking to you. Now, why have I been unleashed from behind the guitar today, I wonder? Well, we're starting a two-part series this week and next week where we're looking at church, the environment, our response to the climate crisis mainly today. And, and if you don't know, actually, my day job, I work in a little sort of niche little area of the investment world where we're thinking about how to integrate thinking about the environment, social stuff into the investment world. And I find myself doing weird things like asking questions at oil company AGMs and the back of my head being tweeted by BBC journalists. You can check it out online. It's a brilliant shot of the back of my bald head that went viral. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, but it also means I'm trying to square my life in this sustainability area with being a Christian. And there's a couple of tensions that come for me in doing that. Um, I'm trying to get to the heart of what's at the climate crisis for me. Because I, when I grew up, when I was studying, actually, the church wasn't the kind of biggest voice on the climate. And I had to kind of find my way in it. You know, why do I care about this stuff? Once I heard about climate change, once I heard about, you know, the, the potentially shocking consequences of it that we're all dealing with even now, how far do I go? How do I engage with it? Because actually, the church isn't the biggest voice. Probably the biggest voices on these two issues are one of these two. Greta or David Attenborough. So for me, it creates a couple of things that I have to process. The first is this. As a Christian, if I believe all this stuff is true about climate change, how far do I go? Do I move to the woods, wear only hemp, drink only oat milk and never go on holiday? Do I protest with powder at Just Stop Oil events or join Extinction Rebellion? How, how seriously should I take it? As a Christian, how much should I sort of partner with that stuff. So that's my first tension. The second tension, and this might resonate with you, if I, if I get that and I do that, I'm just one person. There's eight billion people on planet Earth. If I do everything, everything I possibly could to be more eco-friendly, to be environmentally friendly, would it make a tiniest bit of difference? So I find myself living in between those two worlds. Now, I wonder for you, what you feel when we talk about climate change, when you hear these kind of headlines, when you hear the kind of growing crisis that we see kind of online. You might be uh, somebody who's parenting a teenager, and we have this growing sense of something called eco-anxiety, which is really hitting our young people. You might be wondering what, a bit like me, kind of what choices you should be making and how that squares with your faith. Because I think there's something we need to uncover, actually, and it's that when you read these kind of headlines, code red for humanity, Net zero is going to add to your energy bills. Kind of whatever side of the debate you're on, if you're like the greenest of the green, or actually you're more like a bit sceptical about this whole net zero thing that you're hearing a bit about. Actually, both sides of the debate, they're majoring on one thing, one motivator, and that's fear. So actually, I love Greta, and I love what she's achieved, 
and the, the messaging that she's brought and the urgency that she's brought to the climate debate, but it's not a hopeful message. <laughs> it's certainly one that kind of adds to that sense of anxiety and doom and dread. And then on the other side of it, we have the kind of newspapers who want to think that Greta's going to steal your car and David Attenborough never wants you to go on holiday ever again. You know, it's all fear-driven. So how do we as Christians, how do we work to something like our faith out in this environment with this whole debate is just shaped by fear and, and actually driven by an agenda that's kind of backed by money? How on earth do we live kind of in that tension? Well, you'll be pleased to know that kind of as Christians, we live a very, very different story. And I hope, I'm just going to uncover for you what the biblical story is today, and I hope that will give you power um, to engage with this issue a bit anew. Because, guys, we know, actually, stories are massively, massively powerful, aren't they? I want to just open up the window into the Crossman domestic arrangements just for a minute, just to make this point. So Annie and I, we don't have a lot of shared cultural history, so when we find a TV show that we both love, that is fantastic for us, okay? Now, uh, back in January, we got, we got into a particular show called The Gold on iPlayer. If anyone's seen it, it's about some thieves who thought they were stealing a small amount of money and ended up stealing half the gold in the entire world. Get into it. No plot spoilers, I promise. Um, but just picture with me in your mind's eye the Crossman front room in January as we discover this brand new fantastic series. Annie is on the sofa. She's got the blanket, she's got the cup of tea, and she is in rapt attention. She is concentrating on every plot development, every character development, every plot twist. She is completely locked in. She's totally, totally hooked, okay, on this brand new TV show. Me, <laughs> I'm a little bit different. I've watched the first couple of minutes, then the dishwasher's beeped at me. So I've gone off and I've unsat the dishwasher and I've come back and sat down and I've, I've kind of refocused again. And then, yeah, a couple more minutes. Oh, football's on, and I wonder what the score is. Just have a quick check there. Annie and I were living very, very differently. Why was that? Well, Highgrove on, on online, this is going out live, isn't it? I've got a confession to make. That wasn't the first time I was watching The Gold. <laughs> Annie had been on holiday with Barnes the week before, and I quite often vet the TV shows we watch beforehand just to make sure they're good. But it was so good. I'd watched one episode... In fact, every episode, all the way to the end. Now, put it another way, I knew how the story was going. I knew the beginning, the middle, and the end, and it completely changed the way I live. And I think if we get hold of this story today, it's got that kind of power um, to change the way we think about the environment and as Christians. Okay, like all good stories, what do all good stories uh, have, guys? They have a beginning, a uh, middle, and an end. Very good. You've all got top marks on comprehension. Um, the beginning. What's the beginning? The beginning of the story is Genesis. The beginning of the story is creation. The beginning of the story is a simple but profound truth that this whole earth that we live on is infinitely good. And at the end of that incredible first 30 verses of Genesis, it, it's summed up by this. You know, all that God has created, the um, the life on earth, the life in the sea, the moon, the stars, everything that we have, all the processes that are wrapped up there. God says he saw all that he had made and it was not just good, <laughs> but very good. As you think about nature, you think about the fact that it's actually big picture. It's kind of on our side. We plant stuff and it grows. 
We've got summer and winter. We've got seasons to enjoy. We've got mountain grandeur. We've got seas. We've got beauty. We've got abundance. Actually, 8 billion people on planet Earth, all just fed by nature, just working. So right at the beginning of the story, we have something to hold on to. Actually, this world that we are living on and in and are part of is fundamentally good if only we'd learn how to relate to it properly. So that's the start of the story. The creation is fundamentally good. We have this thing called the Goldilocks effect. I don't know if anyone knows about this. Neither too hot nor neither too cold. We, our planet is just the right distance away from the sun so that water is, can be ice and gas and the liquid. Sorry, bit of a geeky moment there. Um, but it's incredible. Another 100 miles to the other side or 1,000 miles to the other side, we're, we're a dusty planet with nothing. We are incredibly blessed. We are God's people and we live in a good creation. Okay, what's uh, the middle of the story then? Well, sadly, it, it might be the middle of the story, but it actually comes in even in the first book of the Bible. It actually comes in in Genesis. And that's this. Sin has messed everything up. After the fall and the rebellion, things become like really, really twisted in the way that we relate to the environment and each other. And actually in Genesis 3, it sums it up. It says this. So this is after all that abundance and that beauty. The, the, the plot twists a bit. And it says, God is saying to Adam and Eve after the sin has entered through the garden, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken for dust. And you are to dust you will return. So I didn't read that quite right. <laughs> so why is this the case? What has happened? Why, why is this beautiful creation suddenly be some, something that's full of briars and thorns and is going to take our toil? Well, it's to do with our role that we were always supposed to have and how sin has messed that up. So there's this verse in Genesis 1.28 that I want to just dig into just a little bit. Um, which uh, will actually open the door to uh, how this kind of sin stuff has messed up our relationship with the environment. Oh, gosh. Has that come off the screen? Never mind. I'll read it out to you anyway. It says, Genesis 1.28 says this. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, this idea of uh, having dominion, of subduing, it's been a bit of a stumbling block, I think, because some people take that as like permission to do whatever you want. We'll just use the earth however we want, push out pollution, we'll just get whatever we need out of it and not have a thought to the consequences. But I think we need to read that verse kind of in its context. Actually, that instruction from God was given before sin. And actually, the people of God there were true image bearers. They'd been created in this image of God. And in the image of God... It's nothing to do with powerful domination. It's everything to do with lovingly serving. And actually, if we're going to respond to this call, uh, to respond to the climate crisis as Christians, we need to get back into that identity as loving servants of everything that we have under our control. So this, uh, this is uh, a permaculture garden. If you don't know what permaculture is, it's like a, a brand of um, farming where you seek to grow all kinds of plants and species all together. And it produces food. Anyone like the look of that? Anyone like that in their garden? <laughs> I would. <laughs> this is the Amazon rainforest. 
Or was, indeed. Very good point. Uh, this is the Dust Bowl in America in the last century when agricultural farming practices were, were used uh, massively using mechanisation and didn't think about soil quality. And before you knew it, you had these huge big dust clouds and, and falling crop yields and people starving. This is the tar sands in Canada. So this is deciduous forest, burdened green forest, and you strip out, the, get rid of the forest, dig out this tarry stuff, boil it, and that goes in your car. It's a bit of a difference, isn't it? <laughs> between lovingly serving and this kind of dominating, powerful exploitation. And I think I want to sum it up, actually. There's something happening in creation when sin came in that has messed up our relationship with each other, but also with the world. And this is the consequence. And I would argue that actually sin is at the heart of the climate crisis. Romans 8 sums it up like this. It says, all creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And I think that's something not just to do with wanting God to come back for dealing with sin and all that stuff, but also for this good creation to be restored and renewed. So since Adam, we haven't been lovingly serving, have we? We've been exploiting stuff for our own benefit, whether that be people or planet. Well, what on earth do we do to change course? What hope do we have? Okay, that's the beginning, that's the middle. What's the end? Well, happily, and this is great for a morning when we're doing communion. <laughs> Jesus' death and resurrection breaks the curse of sin, and he's coming back to make it all new. How do we get back to the heart of God? How do we get back to that garden place where we're carrying the image of God? Well, we have to trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and crucially in his resurrection. He's the true image bearer. He's the one who lived perfectly in this earth and with this earth, living simply and living humbly, showing us that way to live that doesn't depend on more and more stuff and having more and more stuff. And I think that's actually really crucial for us to understand. Actually, something happened in God's resurrection of Jesus uh, that we will have to tap into if we're going to be solving the climate crisis. So something happened on the cross that wasn't just about your personal future, but about the future of the planet as well. So we think about the future. What is the future of the planet? So I think something happened, actually, in the sort of 18th and 19th century, where our, our heads and our minds got a bit messed up about what the future of the world is in the church. And I've been doing some extensive cultural research uh, this week, uh, and I, I actually am going to blame, put the blame firmly at the door of Tom and Jerry. Um, <laughs> somehow we got this idea that when we die, our sort of disembodied soul floats off up this pearly staircase to the pearly gates. And we get this idea that, you know, the earth was for now, but that's going to go in the bin. And I'm going to float around on a cloud with Jesus singing Matt Redman songs forever. Um, <laughs> now, no one's, I can't say in this talk exactly what the future exactly looked like with Jesus, but we do know there is an element of continuity as well as this glorious reality of the resurrection. Actually, what does the end of the Bible say? Revelation 21, right at the end, we've gone Genesis to Revelation. John says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful hope that we have? to speak into this time of crisis. Just want to do a little, little dig into one of those words there, just to make my point. It says at the start there, a new heaven and a new earth. Actually, the Bible has lots of words that are translated as new. And you've got two kind of kinds of new, right? You've got one called neos and one called kainos, okay? Neos is like, have you ever had the privilege of holding a newborn? like sort of an hour old or even 10 hours old, as as an auntie or an uncle or a niece or a nephew that you might have hold. That's neos. It's brand new. It's like never been seen before, utterly perfect in its newness. Kynos is a bit different. Kynos is like renewed. And the best example I could come up with, I I had a friend actually when I used to do Love Bristol Church down in uh, Stokes Croft. He was a guy who became a Christian out of a, a pattern of addiction through drugs and alcohol. Became a Christian and then said, right, I need to sort myself out with the help of God and some others. And he went off to rehab. And we didn't see Michael for like three months. But when he came back through the door of our church, it was like, that's Michael. (laughs) But it's like the best version of Michael I could ever imagine. Happy, whole, renewed and restored. And actually that's the word we've got here. It's, it's a kainos new heaven. It's a kainos new earth. It's got this continuity with what's come before, but it's utterly restored and made new by what God has done on the cross in Jesus. Okay, so that's the story. How should that change the way we live? What does that really mean to us? Okay, last bit of Bible for us to look at today. We're going to just look very quickly at the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Okay. So I've talked about the power of the resurrection and how um, central this is to our understanding of how we should live into the future. And I don't know if you've ever read um, 1 Corinthians 15, but it's just the most astonishing 57 verses all about the resurrection. It's like all that is wonderful and pure and true of Easter just distilled into this incredible package. Honestly, guys, it is that good, 1 Corinthians 15. doesn't get read out at weddings very much. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 takes that. But I would recommend digging into 1 Corinthians 15. But it ends a bit weird for me, if I'm honest. I read 1 Corinthians 15 and I get so excited. I'm just, oh, Jesus is coming back. He's going to restore everything. And you know, when you're reading the Bible sometimes with Paul, he goes into these moments where it's just like, he almost like loses sight of himself. And he's like, and it's glory and it's wonder and it's praise. And you're like, there's no punctuation for like line after line of the Bible. I always think 1 Corinthians 15 is going to go into this. It's going to say, therefore, my dear brothers brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that we're all going to live with Jesus forever and it's going to be brilliant. We're going to see revival. It doesn't say that. It says this, because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I always think that's a bit of like a gear change, like record scratch kind of moment. I'm like, huh? That's the message, Paul, that you want me to get from the resurrection is essentially keep calm and carry on. (laughs) But if we dig into this, I think it unlocks a huge amount for us to to live differently. 
Because actually, what it's saying is, everything that you do on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection is of eternal, lasting value. Everything. Every person that you love, every time you make a choice to be more eco-friendly, every time you're stood in the drizzle, sorting your plastic from your cardboard with a stinking fetid food bin somewhere down here in this summer heat, you can whisper to your heart, my labour is not in vain. Every time you make that slightly more financially expensive decision to do something that's a bit more eco, you can say that in your heart. My labour is not in vain. If you're choosing your GCSEs or your uni subjects, if you're thinking about the future and you're thinking, what's the point? Actually, there's a huge point. Get involved. Study the stuff that's going to help you on this crisis. Your labour is not in vain. And if you aren't someone who would say you're a churchgoer at the moment or wouldn't say you're following God or a regular part of church, wouldn't you like to know what it is to have a connection with eternal lasting value? To know that what you're doing is not in vain. Just as I wrap up, I want to sort of paint a bit of a picture of the future for us to give us that sense of I guess, mission on this whole thing that we're going to explore a bit next week as well with our guests from Arusha. What would the world be like (laughs) if we all lived as perfect image bearers? If we all lived as if our labour wasn't in vain? If all our choices reflected a value of people and planet that would last forever? If we gave up having more for the sake of having that healthy, beautiful environment? What if we took all of our skills and talents and didn't use them to powerfully exploit the world, but to lovingly care for it, to maximise the benefit for every single person on planet Earth? I think that's a world worth living for, don't you? And I think that's a powerful story with which to speak to a world that is in crisis on this issue and has little hope. So, I always like to try and sum up talks in something that you can take with you and remember or at least tweet about or put on Facebook later. So are you ready for this? You can tweet this, I guarantee you. Here's the big idea. Knowing the story of God's heart for the planet gives us energy to live differently starting now. And actually if you want an even simpler version, I'm going to paraphrase Martin Luther. Jesus is coming. Plant a tree. (laughs) Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you that we're privileged to sit ourselves in a great narrative of your goodness, your provision for us as human beings. Thank you that we are part of that good creation. Thank you that you've provided everything that is necessary for us to be restored back to that true image and that we can trust that you are coming again in glory to restore this earth and everyone on it that follows you to uh, that place of communion where there'll be no more tears, no more death. We love you, Lord God, and we thank you for the role that we have now to bring hope to this world. Amen. Amen.